Hello, Catherine Williamson, episode six, with my dear friend and compatriot in podcasting, Jill Garrett. Hello. (laughs) Well, Jill, I'm excited about today's subject, spiritual intelligence. Now, I've got a feeling that I would get the death stare if I said, oh, does this mean we've got to just nip off and have our tarot cards read or find ourselves a shawami? I don't think that's what it means, does it? No, not at all. (laughs) What does it mean then, Jill? So to me, it's about just being able to explore those deeper purposes that we have in the work that we do and the lives that we live. Um, so that we're asking that why question, why do we do what we do? Can I just tell you a little story? Years and years and years ago, so in the in the 20th century, towards the end of the 20th century, I can remember doing um, an engagement survey with a company in Ireland, in Southern Ireland. And it was a pharmaceutical company and their engagement scores were really low and they just invented a drug that was life-changing. And um, I can remember walking into this beautiful building where the reception area was filled with daylight and it was an octagon in shape with four windows and four walls. It was just beautiful. And the, the CEO met me. And I can remember saying to him, you know, if this was my company, I'd have life-size pictures on this wall, on each one of those walls, of people whose lives had been saved through the work that you do. And I'd know the story behind every picture, and I'd be changing them every four weeks. And the people on reception and the people on security would know that their job is not security and their job is not reception. They're contributing to life-saving. And I just think that often we don't help people to understand why they do what they do and the deeper purpose and meaning of the work, and it just adds something to it. It's not that easy, is it, Jill? Because I would say in my 20s... um, I was a a really um, successful saleswoman. And I know that by my mid-30s, selling for selling's sake just has lost its appeal to me. And then I made a decision to go into leadership and development. But how many times in coaching sessions are people saying, can you help me find my purpose? It's not like an izzy-wizzy, is it magic wand type thing. Um, So what's our definition then of spiritual intelligence? I think for me, a lot of it rests in our values and beliefs and the things that we're passionate about. And most people are passionate about something. Mm. And I guess at its basic level, purpose will be about earning a wage to support people we care about. Mm-hmm. You know, I think about, absolutely. I think about some of the economies that I work in, where really people are living hand to mouth, and that's true in the UK as well. And if the biggest purpose you can give someone is being able to feed their family, that's a good purpose in itself. And helping people to see that by the work they do every day, they help their colleagues to feed their families. That's a purpose in itself. Yes. And I'm reflecting because it's well over a year ago now um, when both Joseph, my son, moved out and then my daughter Alice moved out. And I loved having children at home. So for months after that, I felt bereft. I was 
cooking meals that we weren't able to eat because there, was, <laughs> there were three times the size they needed to be. But then something started to happen. Once I got over it, I suddenly started to have more energy because I wasn't really spending the same amount of tech day if I was a bird I wasn't out fetching worms all the time and putting in beaks that sort of real need to provision and to um, nurture my chicks as it were had been removed and I would say at 58 years of age I'm in this new energy excited place in my life the podcast I've had a lot to do with it but I don't want to be feeding people in the practical sense, I, but I do want to be feeding them at a much more, um, you know, that's what we're, these podcasts are. We're, Absolutely. Pro- we're providing, you and I are sort of pinning ourselves out a bit like lab rats and offering up our insights, our wisdoms and our mistakes as an opportunity for other people to learn and understand. But that feels so much truer to me at this stage in my life than I would have thought it would at 35 where I was I got young kids and I was constantly thinking about how I was going to pay the mortgage yeah and so I think our our purpose will change over time but the underlying purpose will be about making a positive difference Mm -hmm. that's what unites purpose and different people will have different positive purposes I can remember a consultancy that I worked at where we spent a lot of time thinking about our values. And I remember that one of our values was contribution. And it was about making a disproportionate contribution to change the world for good. And that, to me, was a good reason for being part of that consultancy. Um, And I think at that stage, I was probably about 52. So you can kind of see that I think for most people, it's about making a positive difference to the lives of others. I did this leadership training with Disney. It was quite a few years ago, but it was really good quality stuff. And they had their sort of overall vision or mission. I sometimes get those interchanged, forgive, um, that anybody coming to a Disney resort was going to get the holiday of a lifetime. And that meant from the CEO to the people that were sweeping up the path, if there was a piece of litter on the ground, the CEO would know to pick that up because that's going to preclude somebody from having Mm. a holiday of a lifetime. And everybody could connect into it because sometimes it's... They can be very noble endeavours, these big overarching organisational purposes, but you've still got to know how you plug into that Absolutely. and how you contribute to that. So how, you know, is that the role of the boss? How does that roll up? I think, I think the leader needs to socialise that purpose and then it needs to become viral across the organisation. So I don't know if you know this, but Disney was one of my clients at one stage when I worked with Gallup. And I remember we went down to Florida and one of the things that you did as you kind of became part of that organisation or family was that you had to go out as Mickey or Minnie in the costumes and your face ached at the end of it because you could see children running towards you and you caused so much pleasure. (laughs) And in a sense, it's that viral this is the difference we make. And I've probably, again, I've probably told you this before, but um, my mind goes back to my first headship where um, it was before the days of text messages and things. Um, and you would receive your GCSE results on bits of paper. And 
I happened that year to be the person who was in school who would make sure that everyone got their bits of paper. And we had a lad whose name was Leroy. And he'd been at the school um, for, for the whole of his secondary education. And before he came to us, he'd been excluded from primary school. Now, in those days, being excluded from you primary to, school was actually... Absolutely. <laughs> um, but he came to us and he got just the results that he needed to go on and do a course to be a chef. That was all he was really interested in. But he towed the line. And we happened to have incredibly good exam results that year. And I could have gone into the staff meeting at the beginning of term and said, our exam results improved by 8.6%. And people would have cheered. And Well, I don't know that they would actually, but they'd have been pleased. But I didn't do that. I talked about the fact that I'd seen Leroy come in. He'd taken this paper, he'd fallen to his knees and had almost sobbed because he'd got into college. That was all he wanted, just to leave school at the end of year 11, go to college and focus on his cooking. And I'd looked in the files, in those days they were paper files, and 47 different members of staff had taught Leroy over the time he'd been in the school. And I talked about the fact that he'd been excluded from primary school three times before he came to us. He'd never been excluded from our school, but that these 40-odd staff had all been responsible for carving a key that they'd put into his hand that helped him to get to the next stage of his life. Now, that's, that's purpose. And I think for almost every job, you can begin to find some sense of meaning, some sense of purpose, which just helps people to see that they're part of something bigger. Um, I remember going back to that day at the dairy that I talked about Viktor Frankl um, and that book that he wrote, yeah, The Search for Meaning. And and he's um, an Austrian who is in... series of Nazi concentration camps, including Auschwitz. And he writes this book, The Search for Meaning. And and gosh, if you're trying to find meaning anywhere, it's in a concentration camp. Mm. Um, And he said, I found three sources of meaning. One was the kindness that I observed in others who are trying to help those who are dying, who are sick. The second was in my own work because I was able to help other people not to suffer as much. And the third was in my own suffering, because in that suffering, I chose to grow and to learn and to develop myself. And it is that notion that in every situation we choose and we make choices. And I don't think it's any accident at all that from the beginning of um, engagement science, employee engagement science, the first times that people started to measure responses in engagement surveys and look at them in terms of the impact on productivity, that there's a statement in there that says, I see the meaning and purpose in the work that I do. And again, I think it's because we're human beings, we do want to make a difference. We want to make a positive impact on the lives of others, whether it's our family, our friends or something bigger. Mm. Well, some people are really able to connect to that very early on, aren't they? So my dad only ever wanted to be a teacher. He became a teacher. He was a fantastic teacher. 
when he died, so many people got in touch because he's one of those teachers that the best teacher that somebody ever had who people really said he made a standout difference. And you know, sometimes people can go into nursing or doctors and they, they're dead clear about it. Mm. Um, you know, over the course of a very varied career, I've been bimbling around and doing all sorts of things. But, you know, I've been good at them. Talk about photography. I've been very, very good at photography. But it didn't feel that I was really living out my purpose taking a great mm. photograph. Mm. It was a lovely moment mm. to be part of. So it didn't f- give me that real sense of fulfilment because sometimes in situations, being connected to your purpose is about the bit that keeps you going. Absolutely. Doesn't it? Yeah. That gives you the bit of fuel to push through mm. um, and find yourself going forward when actually people around you have started saying, you know, isn't it time? It's old, the old Edison, isn't it? Pressing on with his light bulbs. So... I know if I wanted to understand my emotional intelligence, I could pick up a number of assessment tools. I've used them myself. What would you expect to understand at the end of a spiritual intelligence assessment? What would it be measuring? I don't I don't think I've ever seen a spiritual intelligence assessment. But I do think that with spiritual intelligence, it's being able to see the purpose in your work. So maybe if I were building a tool now, it would have a statement in that you'd score on a on a Likert scale that says I understand the meaning and purpose of the work that I do. Um, In the work that I do, I feel connected to the people that I work with. Um, In the work that I do, I feel alignment between the work and my values. It would be those sorts of questions. It's about this lines up with the things that I really value. I'm with people whose values I share and I can see that together we make a difference. So without intentionally saying, you know, when I'm talking, you know, working with somebody and I'm coaching them and we sort of lay out the stuff that we might cover, we might, we're doing elements of that because I do, we do stuff about character strengths, don't we? We do stuff about values. We do stuff about understanding where people get energy from and where they flourish, etc. So in some level, we're touching upon these subjects as discrete subjects like understanding your values. But actually, it's been much more intentional about understanding um, what you stand for. Because in Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl talks that I think at least three or four occasions he could have escaped. Mm. And on every occasion, he didn't do it. It seemed to be that he walked out alive primarily because he had such a clear value set yeah. um, and he stuck by what he intuitively felt was the right thing to, to do. do. Yeah. You know, and not all of us, I, I went to see To Kill a Mockingbird last week, not all of us are equipped like Atticus Finch, are we, no. that we aren't so clearly aware of our drive for justice fair world where we will put ourselves on the line you know but we've got to find some way of connecting with it we're not talking about zipping off to church are we we're not talking about religion we're not talking about going and getting crystals and candles and sitting in front of a joystick what are we talking about how do how do we acquire it understand when we've got it it's trying i'm trying to get that handle on it yeah i think it, it is easier for some people than others i think people's brains are wired in different ways mm. um but i think the majority of people i talk to are able to articulate the things that they value and there are good questions you can ask them about what are the things that mean most to you in life? How would you measure life's success? Years ago, I worked with a friend, Rob Parsons, and he wrote a book called um, 
how to succeed in business without losing in life. And I guess that whole question of what would it mean to you to lose in life? What would be the things that you wouldn't want to lose? are good questions about values. Most people can connect with that. Most people can answer the question, what really matters to you in colleagues you work with? What are the things that you always look for in colleagues who you want as part of your team? And what are the things that have been lasting things that have really brought you satisfaction in the work that you do and the life that you live? You know, and I'm just asking those questions off the top of my head. But exploring those with people really helps them to think through their personal brand. And are you seeing a situation that a manager would actually, as part of that personal development space, that would pose these sorts of questions to somebody that worked for them? We would get around to doing that because sometimes mm-hmm. people say that sits nicely in the life mm-hmm. coaching space, isn't it? Mm. But are we asking bosses to sort of ask about what keeps you awake at three o'clock in the morning? What's your hopes and your dreams? What what gets you alive? Are we saying that? Well, tomorrow I'm working um, with an organisation that I've worked with for about 20 years now and I do two days a month for them. Tomorrow I'm interviewing one, two, three, four people for new roles. And those are just the sort of questions that people would ask. Why do you want to work with us? How do you think your values align to our values? And they're very clearly there on the website. What's the difference you want to make? And there's one role which some of the people apply for thinking it's hugely customer-facing, client-facing. And actually their main clients are their colleagues. It's, it's given a title. I'm not going to say it because I don't want to let the name of the company out. But in other organisations, you'd probably be frontline customer facing. Mm. And um, the lady who manages that area will sometimes say, do you know, it really bothers me that they're so desperate to be working with customers because they don't get the chance to do that here. Well, yeah, that's but that's sort of setting, setting an expectation that's not going to be fulfilled. Yeah, and it, making it really clear. Yeah. Um, but the difference that you make there might be something that would make a difference. So one of the podcasts that we've done, um, Imposter Syndrome, is the one that gave me goose pimples, I would say, Jill. And it's when you talk about a kid that's got drunk at lunchtime, had some really bad news about his dad, he stood stood in the quadrant having robbed a javelin and is about to aim it at his least favoured PE teacher. And you run into that situation because your primary motivator is that he's not going to ruin the rest of his life. Now, between being a head teacher and having an understanding that you do not want a young person to ruin the rest of their life, that's a big jump, isn't it, from Ofsted and SATs and everything else. And how clearly do you think the majority of us are, are actually understanding that that job is capable of having that impact? And again, I think that's what people need to help others to understand You know, I've perhaps said this on a previous podcast, but I was 31 when I got the first headship. And um, you can see why we've called this gobstopper. Mm. But I can remember being challenged by a member of staff in a staff meeting, and it was something to do with the, the redecorating the staff room. And we got so many problems with the budget. 
And I said, you know, we're not here just so that teachers can feel comfortable. We're here so that children can learn. And this year, we just can't afford to do that. I'm sorry. I'd do it if I could do it. But we're here so that children can learn. And I think it's the tales that you tell, you know, like the Leroy tale, like the tales about the youngsters who I remember in another, um, in in, in my second headship, Um, we had a young woman called Lucy who was in a wheelchair and my heart sang when I saw Lucy helping a youngster who'd got learning difficulties to read. And that's what you want to create, that environment where every child is contributing the best they can. And Lucy felt enormous value and worth because she she knew that she could teach others to do something. She couldn't run. She couldn't take part in some of the other things that some of her, her other friends could do. But she could do that very well. And I think in any job that you work in, there's some sort of motivation that you need about helping people to be the best they can be in that situation. That's why you coach. You don't just coach for the money. On our way here today, we were talking about some very disparate and desperate coaching situations, <laughs> and you certainly don't just do it for the money. No, I, I often reflect that I've ended up listening to a lot of pain for 23 yeah. years, and I've ended up getting to the point sometimes where it's made me almost so glum or, you know, almost at one point made me almost ill because I didn't think I could listen to one more problem. But actually, for somebody that likes to transmit so much, I am able to listen and mm. give people space and time. And the biggest reason for doing that is the people that gave it me when I was really desperate. That, you know, they say the greatest forms of hospitality are to put a plate of food out in front of somebody and to listen to them, you know. And that has meant that I've, um, you know, I've cultivated an ability to listen and to listen well so people can feel understood and heard. But it's there's been some effort involved. I've had to bury quite a bit of ego, <laughs> tone it down a bit. But when you know that you've helped release mm. somebody from mm. a burden, um, it's just an amazing feeling. And it powers me on and it powers yeah. me on. It's like bubbles of energy. That to me, you see, is spiritual food. Mm. And it's that's what it means to be a human being. So I think everyone has has a level of spiritual intelligence, just as with emotional intelligence, we know that some are more blessed with it than others. But everyone who's, who's a normal functioning adult has a modicum of emotional intelligence. And it's the same with spiritual intelligence. That desire to just make another person's life better is, is actually what it's about. We're coming towards the end of this one, Jill, but I had an ambition to go into coaching. It was in the year 2000, and the first life coaching course I went on, I was given feedback at the end of it that I wasn't sufficiently spiritual enough and I had to work on my spirituality, which left me wandering around the Peace Festival (laughs) in Leamington Spa. And I thought, is it this book? Is it this? You know, I got myself involved in a, a plethora of interesting spiritual practices. If I was to distill it down now as to what that person was trying to say is, it was, I just was, it was I, I, me, me. My life at that stage was, I'm not happy. I want this. Um, it was a, I was a very egocentric character, working on it, but quite egocentric. And I think what's shifted in me is that need for it to be all about me. It still has to be quite about me. Um, and I see that as being that there's a quieter... Um, 
more considered, more grounded individual that's got a stronger draw on right and wrong and understanding of what makes mm. me tick. Mm -hmm. And I think it dovetails into this, isn't it, really? I think that's right. You know, you said earlier on this isn't about being religious, and I'd agree with that so much. I, th I think for some people, their faith gives them a framework that helps them to make sense of some of this. Mm. But for me, it's about being a human being because I, I believe that human beings are spiritual and social animals who actually function best in society. Mm. And it's about being able to build that connection. And that's something you do brilliantly. Aww. And it's about building that connection with other people that enables them to thrive, that actually enables you and me and I would say many, many millions of other people to thrive as well. That, to me, is what spiritual intelligence is about. It gives you meaning. And I think that's a good place to draw it to a close today. So any thoughts, Jill, about what we're going to give them in Episode 7? Well, I don't know what you think about this, but at the moment I'm playing about with AI. AI? I, AI. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't expect that. And I thought what we could do is look at the difference between EI, emotional intelligence, and AI, augmented intelligence that comes from, really, from technology. Well, I am quite desperate to hear that, never mind. Yeah, I just think artificial <laughs> intelligence is such a big thing at the moment that that's something we need to get our head around because it is the future and people have got to start thinking about how do we use artificial intelligence with emotional intelligence to help people to thrive, which gives a nice rounded finish to what we're doing today. Well, we do like to leave them in a good place, Jill. So thank you once again. I can see all the research you do comes equipped with notes and I can be equipped with curiosity. So well done, Jill. And I look forward to the next time that we meet in the podcast studio. Thank Bye. you. Bye-bye. <laughs>